Well, it's great to welcome you with us again today at the Burdonga District Baptist Church. Some time ago for a season in my life, I taught theological students in Papua New Guinea, many of whom were training to become pastors, some who actually had already served as pastors in their local villages. And let me tell you, some of those local villages were some pretty rough places. The life of a pastor in a local village wasn't all that easy. Most of the churches would not be able to afford to pay a pastor. There was just not the cash economy to do that. And so the person who was the pastor would end up growing their own food like everyone else, trying to earn some money by selling food or services like everybody else, paying for their own transport or clothes or whatever they need. Generally speaking, they were pretty poorly off. And in a country where money meant power and power was often married to corruption, uh, many of them had a very low view of successful business people. Even some of the students that I would have reflected in, uh, in the picture that you might be able to see here would have had a very low view of people who were successful in business. And one of the questions that I used to really enjoy debating with the students was, can a Christian be a business person? In other words, can a Christian have money? And the answer for many of them was no. They had seen the corruptions, they had seen the, the, the perversion, if you like, of good people or the corruption of good people by money. And they said that money and people don't mix. And, you know, we'd quote Bible verses about that. You can't serve both God and money and that sort of stuff. And then I would do something really interesting, and I always enjoyed doing this. I'd take them for a walk over to the library just nearby where we were teaching. Uh, the library was called the Leonard Buck Library. And I don't know if that name surprises you or not. Some of you might be familiar with the name Len Buck. Uh, Len Buck was a very successful businessman. He had a lot to do with the Belgrave Heights uh, Christian Convention. He was a very generous donor, a philanthropist, a benefactor of many Christian organisations. In fact, the Everyman's Welfare Service, uh, based out here in Wodonga, the Gaza Ridge Barracks, actually have a centre named after Leonard Buck because he was a man who was dedicated to making money and using money ethically uh, for uh, the support of Christian ministry. And I suspect that Leonard Buck would have been really, really comfortable uh, as we come here today into Acts chapter 4 and look at the generosity of the church because he was a man of great generosity. In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to verse 37 and then verses Five to sorry verses one to eleven of chapter five. We're going to look at the root of generosity and the corruption of that generosity, as we have another snapshot today of that early church uh, that has been given to us by Luke in the book of Acts. And as we come to the reading in just a moment, one of the things that will strike us potentially is this extraordinary manner in which the apostles, the disciples, the Christians held things in common. And one of the questions that kind of comes to mind is this, when we look at this passage, is what we have described here a description of something that should be normative for Christians in all times? Is this organic communism, if you like, being portrayed as the ideal state of the church? Is there some sort of uh, grassroots collectivism that the modern church should aspire to or is there something else being communicated through this passage 
Well, to put your mind at rest as we come to this passage, I want to drill down deeper than just the generosity and ask the question, what was driving that? What gave rise to that? And how should that be reflected in our lives as a church together too? And uh, one of the things that we will see here is that the church is not just a gathering of devoted friends. It's actually an enterprise of divine character. God's spirit is at work. We saw that last week at the end of the passage we were looking at there. The meeting where the, uh, the gathered church was was shaken and the presence of the Holy Spirit was strong in that place. And the unity of God's people is important. We'll see that today. We're going to break our passage up into two parts and uh, read the first part here together uh, from verse 32 where Luke tells us all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons amongst them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. We'll see a lot more about Barnabas as we go on. Sold a field he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. One of the things we need to keep in mind as we come to this passage is that um, the gathering of the church was not a small gathering by this stage. In fact, the numbers now are in excess of 5,000 people. And so the statement that Luke makes about the believers being of one heart and one mind is actually really quite remarkable. You know, they say you get 10 people in a room, you're going to have 10 different opinions. How do you go when you've got 5,000 people in the one place? Large groups can easily become fractured. And one of the challenges in a church, even a church as large as ours, is how do you maintain unity And God loves and desires unity. Notwithstanding this challenge, though, is this statement that Luke makes about the unity in heart and mind of the people. And it actually reflects a promise that God made back in the Old Testament. If you come with me back to Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 39, speaking prophetically in the context of the impending defeat of Judah by the Babylonian army, in a moment when the nation was about to be overwhelmed, God said, I've got plans for my people, redemptive plans for my people. He said, I will give them a singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and for the good of their children after them. These words were spoken centuries before by God and they were fulfilled at Pentecost and they were being realised in the life of the church. They're to be realised in the life of the church here in Acts. They're to be realised in the life of the church as we also gather in whatever form that might take. And Luke tells us that nobody claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything. In verse 34, we're told that there were no needy people among them because from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money and put the money at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to those who had need. Now, we shouldn't believe for a moment that everybody sold everything, that the whole church just 
sold up and gave the money. Otherwise, where would they live? It's clear that they still had homes and they would obviously still need possessions to be able to live. But there was a readiness to share, a generosity of spirit, a a sense that what I have is only mine to look after and use to the glory of God. And so none of them claim their possessions as they own. They recognised that possessions were not to hold uh, more value. They were not to be there exclusively for their own benefit. They weren't to be held captive by them. And one of the questions that I was reflecting on as I was thinking about this passage was, what is it that's driving this generosity? You know, what, what caused them to act and behave in that way? One of, the, uh, one of the realities of being a pastor is you've always got a little bit of an eye on church finances. I kind of have a bit of a hands-off approach in many respects, uh, but you always keep a bit of an eye on it. And one of the experiences that I've had over the years, and uh, you'll, you'll be able to hear these conversations, is this one. When church finances are going well, Uh, the gathering of your elders or your leadership team or your diaconate goes like this you know how's the how's the last couple of months been terrific you know God has blessed us that's fantastic let's praise him for that and so we do and then when things are not going so well here's how the conversation goes Uh, yeah it hasn't been a good few months in fact the trend has been going down for you know what we need we need some preaching on giving we need some, some sermons on stewardship. And uh, as a pastor, I sit there in those meetings and today I'm kind of confessing something I've never articulated to an eldership or a leadership group before and here it is now. It's going to be out there in, uh, online internationally forever. So don't shoot the messenger. I sit there and I cringe because... Um, I know if someone says we need some preaching on giving, who the rabbit's going to be that actually has to do the preaching. That's going to be me. Um, It won't be the elder who thinks it's a great idea. It won't be the person who's watching the finances who says, you know, we need some preaching on stewardship. I know that it's going to be me that will be under pressure to do that. That's a personal thing. But the second thing is this. I'm not actually convinced that it works. I'm, I'm not sure that preaching on stewardship or giving actually makes a difference. Now, I'm not s- suggesting for one second that preaching on stewardship or possessions or money is not appropriate. Let's deal with the text, whatever the text gives us. If it's about stewardship, let's talk about stewardship. If it's about giving, let's talk about giving. But uh, when the church is struggling financially to get up and hammer people with this message, you need to give more faithfully. I'm not 100% convinced that that actually is a great strategy. It might have a short-term impact, but long-term, I'm not sure that it's the best. And as I was reading this passage, I was thinking about this and then it struck me, you know, there might actually be some truth. There might even be some evidence in the scripture to support that kind of sense. What was it that was driving this generosity? What was it that was actually causing this church to act in such a manner that there was nobody in need, that they were giving freely and generously? Let's have a look at verse 33 in chapter 4 together. It says here, With great power, 
the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. You know what's really interesting is that there, as far as we can tell, had been no preaching on generosity. There had been no push towards uh, giving. There was no guilt trip around stewardship. Just the fearless and faithful proclamation of the gospel which transformed hearts and transformed lives. And the reality is, I think, and I put this to you to think about this morning today, the reality is generosity or lack of generosity is always a reflection of the heart. Generosity wells up from a transformed heart. And Luke tells us that it was with great power that the apostles continued to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ. There was an answer to the prayer that they prayed back in chapter 4, verse 29. Help your servants speak boldly. They did that and it changed hearts. This community that was praying was itself transformed. There's always a risk when you pray, you know that, don't you? When you ask God for something, he often does something to you. And grace was evident in this community and it was changed from the inside out a transformation of the heart and so there I say to our elders to our leadership teams to our uh, diaconates whatever they might be you want to see a transformation on the balance sheet you need to see a transformation in people's hearts And as I say, in this church, hearts were being changed from the inside out. Well, most of them were, not all of them were. Uh, There's a story here of extraordinary generosity. There's a story here too of significant greed and unfortunate deceit, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Let's have a look at uh, this passage and read this together too as part of our unpacking of this uh, generosity theme today. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest to put at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You haven't lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who had seen what happened, all who had heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You'd have to say this is one of the saddest stories here in the book of Acts. It confirms, I think, for us uh, two things. One is that Luke has 
recorded for us an accurate reflection of the life of the early church. It's a story that has the good and the bad, which speaks about its truthfulness. It's a story too that um, Sam alluded to a couple of weeks ago about the early church. You know, we look back and we think it was perfect, but it wasn't. It wasn't. There were problems even way back here in these early days. And as you read that story, you might have, if you've got some biblical background, you might know there's things kind of resonating here. You know, Ananias and Sapphira at the start of the life of the early church parallels a little bit with Adam and Eve, another couple who conspired together and came under the judgment of God. You know, we might also think of the story of uh, Achan, Achan, who was there at the Battle of Jericho, and uh, the Israelites, of course, had been told, keep nothing for yourselves. Everything was to be devoted to the Lord. Achan saw some stuff, coveted it, kept it for himself, deceived the people, deceived them before the Lord. And in Joshua chapter 7, uh, this story falls right at the start of the life of the people of Israel together. In the same way, this story falls right at the start of the life of the new people of Israel together, the church. And God's judgment falls swiftly on both. And I guess one of the questions that we've got to ask is this, why this judgment? You know, God acts decisively and harshly in this context. God didn't give Ananias and Sapphira even opportunity to repent. It seems a bit cruel. But to understand uh, this severity, we need to understand what was really going on because this story is more than just a story about greed. I think probably what was going on was that Ananias and Sapphira had seen others bring money in and present it, although I must just qualify that by saying the, the text, and if we go back to verse 37, for instance, where um, Barnabas, a Levite, Joseph, uh, from Cyprus brought money and brought it to the apostles' feet, there's a sense there where it's done in a manner that drew no attention to him or, or to what he was doing. So it's pure speculation as to whether Ananias and Sapphira had seen others do it or had seen others receive accolade for doing it. We don't know. They may have. They may have thought, gosh, that was nice. Let's us also get a bit of a pat on the back. What we do know from this text is that they were under no obligation to sell their property. They were under no obligation to give all the money from the sale of the property. They could give 20% or 40% or 50 or 80 or 92%, whatever it was. There was no obligation either way. But what we do know is that they chose to act in a deceitful manner. They came with the money and they said, this is all, this is everything that we got. Their greed and their deceit stand in stark contrast to what we've just been observing about this amazing generosity in the life of the congregation. And I guess there'd be people who would read this story from Acts, perhaps without some of the context, and ask the question, yeah, what's wrong anyway? I mean, really, is this a big deal? It's just a few bucks, a few dollars, you know? What's the problem? A bit of a fudge on the tax return, so to speak? A slight adjustment to the balance, a dollar here, a dollar there, a shekel here, a shekel there. It's not like the, uh, their actions hurt anyone. I mean, if Peter hadn't exposed it, who would have known? Why such a strong response from God? 
Well, Peter describes this deception not just as a bad decision or a mistake or an error of judgment, but as a deception, a testing of the Spirit of God. And remember, part of the expression of the Spirit of God was the unity of the people of God. So in a sense, it's a testing of the unity that God so desired. And that's true with Adam and Eve. That was a testing of God's Spirit, a testing of God's truthfulness, a testing of God's Word. It was true of Achan as well, a testing of whether what God said was really true. And the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is the same as the sin of Achan, is the same as the sin of Adam and Eve, the same as anybody who stands and shakes their fist of God. Ultimately, though it may have impacts and implications for others, or it may not, ultimately it's sin against God. And that's true of any sin. And so while on the one hand, This passage warns us about the destructive power of greed. On the other hand, it is a very strong warning against anything which hinders the expression of unity in the context of believers brought together by the Holy Spirit. Nothing is to threaten that. God will not stand anything that comes against the unity of his people. And Luke wants us to understand, and Luke actually uh, of, the, uh, of the, the Gospels and here in Acts, Luke speaks a lot about Satan trying to tear down God's people. And he wants us to understand that very high on Satan's agenda is this tearing down, this destruction of the church. He's tried to do it from the outside. He tried to do it through the Sanhedrin. We saw that last week. And here he's trying to do it from the inside and God will have none of it. The church, which is described as the bride of Christ, is precious to God. At the conclusion of this passage, Luke tells us that there was great fear that seized the whole church and it would be best to understand this, not as terror that caused them to freeze or become anxious, but actually great awe and worship in the presence of God, respect and reverence. You might be familiar with Proverbs Chapter 9, verse 10, which says uh, the uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the same sense. This awe and reverence of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the church uh, witnessing these traumatic events actually uh, were turned to awe and reverence for God. He brought them together. And once you understand that this uh, issue with Ananias and Sapphira was not just greed, but God's concern for the unity and purity of his church. It, it, it casts a whole different light, doesn't it, on how we act in our lives together in a community of believers, however that community might be expressed, whether we gather with just a few others in our homes, with groups, or in the context of the broader congregation. I was speaking to a young guy just a couple of weeks ago who I've known for quite some years. He's moved out of home and, uh, and making his way in the world, struggling with some issues in the church, and I really honour him for doing that and, uh, and was prompted to say to him, you know, one of the things that we need to be is the kind of person we want our church to be. We need to be the people that we want our church to be. God is jealous for the unity of his people. God is jealous for the purity of his church 
and the swiftness of this judgment and the nature of the judgment that we see here in Acts affirms that again. We see it again through God's actions in many, many contexts. And we're reminded again in Psalm 133 just how much God desires this for his people. This is a beautiful psalm and we're going to finish with this today. It's a psalm of ascent and it uses metaphors that you know we might find a little bit clunky or a little bit unusual. Um, you'll understand that when I read it. But here's what uh, is said. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's a good thing when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the bed. You can imagine, you know, a Jewish person, a Jewish man, uh, probably not a Jewish woman, uh, with a great full beard. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down onto the collar of his robe. It's if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. What a great image, you know, Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in Israel. It will be covered in snow in winter. The dew of Hermon, the rain that comes up in the highlands, is as if it's falling on Mount Zion down there in the dry area. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. God loves it when his people live in unity. He loves it when we express our unity in life together. He loves it when we look after one another and protect one another and work together it doesn't mean that we have to be the same. It doesn't mean that we're going to even think the same. But to walk together in unity is something that God loves and desires and he protects jealously. There is an important take-home lesson from this passage from the book of Acts. We're going to continue uh, next week. I think Darren is going to come and continue our journey through the book of Acts. We look forward to that. But let's conclude this part of our service by praying today. God, we thank you that you have called us to be together in your church. We thank you that part of that call is to be expressed in our unity, one with another. We thank you, Lord, that you call us to live with people who are different to us. And so we have to learn what it means to live in unity. We have to exercise grace and forgiveness, tolerance and goodness towards one another. The expression of spiritual gifts is important to our life together in, uh, in, in community. The expression of the fruits of the Spirit are essential to life together in the community. Lord, we pray for our church today that we will reflect this value, this generosity that we see here in this passage and the unity that you desire for us. We pray this because uh, you love us and we know this is according to your will and so ask it in the name of our Saviour Jesus Christ. Amen.